This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. The uh, world of driverless technology has had a rough couple of weeks. Recently, there was an incident in Arizona where someone on a bicycle was hit by an Uber vehicle that was testing the technology. Recently, since then, a Tesla vehicle got into an accident while its autopilot mode was enacted. With all of this, what does it mean? We are joined on the phone by John Paul McDuffie, management professor here at the Wharton School, as well as the director of on the program on vehicle and mobility innovation. And also joining us, Costa Samaras, who's an assistant professor at Carnegie Mellon University's Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering and also an adjunct senior researcher for the RAND Corporation. John Paul, Costas, great to have you with us today. Thank you both. Yeah, great to be here. Great to be with you. Thank you. I guess let's start with what happened with Uber about a week and a half ago. Uh, John Paul, what was uh, your reaction to to when that occurred? Well, I mean, we're early days yet, and there have been very few of these accidents. I mean, this may have been only the second uh, fatal accident and the first of a pedestrian. So I think each story is in that way. shocking and of course when there's a death involved it's it's tragic it's going to be more common and i think you know we've all been telling ourselves that inevitably in the testing and improvement of autonomous vehicles there are going to be people injured and killed and uh, we know that human drivers kill other humans all the time and so uh, but still the reality of it i think as we're all finding is uh, feels a bit different Costas? Absolutely. This is a very tragic situation, um, but it seemed like everything that could go wrong went wrong in this case. You had uh, the sensors on this vehicle should have seen this pedestrian. The backup driver, the safety driver, did not have their hands on the wheel, uh, and no brakes were applied by either the driver or the car. So something went wrong, uh, and we're looking forward to the final and full government report to see what happened. Now, the other story that I mentioned actually has a little bit of a different twist to it, Costa, in the fact that with the accident that involved the Tesla vehicle recently, uh, this actually was a situation, from what I read, that the autopilot had been engaged, but uh, the driver did not take control of, of the vehicle when there was a potential problem that was ready to occur, correct? Yeah, and this is something that you know we have highlighted in our research before, which is, Right now, a driver that uses some sort of robotic system or artificial intelligence to improve their driving uh, it is, it are, can have some good outcomes. But when we are the backup systems, when the humans are the backup systems, we're pretty bad at doing that. And so what appears to have happened here in this Tesla crash was the car is saying to the driver, put your hands back on the wheel, put your hands back on the wheel, and they didn't do it. Uh, the, the Tesla was not able to um, either detect or or the break in time to avoid crashing head-on into this median divider. Um, and this is a, a challenge for this transition to automation, where there's this muddled mixture of humans' responsibility, robot responsibility, and uh, if it's somebody else's job, then nobody else is going to show up. 
And part of the problem, I, in just reacting to it myself, John Paul, is the fact that we already have an issue in this country with distracted driving to begin with. And that's even with people actually being responsible for driving the car at that time. So to a degree, it's hard to correct something that is unfortunately almost ingrained in so many people in the U.S. right now because of other elements within the car right now. Yeah, you're certainly right. The, uh, I mean, for me, the most uh, notable and alarming statistic here is that deaths from uh, vehicle uh, accidents decreased at an almost linear rate from the post-war period until recently. And then in 2015, I think, uh, it went up for the first time in a long time. And in 2016, it went up. And I haven't seen the official 2017 statistics, but I, I think the signs are that it went up as well. So we have a reversal from uh, decline and lots of new safety technologies to uh, increase. And the increase has been substantial. It got as low as 35,000, and it's now up approaching 40,000. And I think pretty much everyone agrees, although there's not hard data on this, that it's distracted driving. So on the one hand, that means uh, all the more reason to hope that uh, automated driving uh, improves fast enough to save us from ourselves. But in the transition, there's a lot more to be done to make uh, regular vehicles safer in terms of the way people use other devices in the car. And uh, it also raises a question about, um, as Casa said, any situation where you're expecting the human and the and the uh, you know the computer algorithms to share control of the car is uh, is very very tricky to hand that control back and forth. You know, Waymo has for three, four years now said, we don't believe that that level three automation where the control gets handed back and forth is a feasible engineering solution. We're going to try to go straight to level four, which is no steering wheel, no brakes, nothing for a human to do. And uh, we may start to see some, uh, you know, testing out of those different approaches now. Costa? Yeah, John Paul is exactly right. I mean, the more than 37,000 road fatalities last year would be the same as if a fully loaded 747 plane would crash every couple of days. I mean, so the it's a public health crisis uh, that automation could completely help with. I think the challenge here is how do we muddle through this uh, this transition period? And the big challenge um, in the last uh, in the last increase that John Paul had mentioned is that pedestrian deaths of the of the 37,000 uh, total road fatalities, pedestrian deaths were about 6,000. And this is the highest number of pedestrian fatalities on the road since 1990. Um, same with uh, bicycle deaths was about 840 fatalities, highest number since 1991. So we're seeing uh, drivers uh, hit other people on the road at increasing rates. And hopefully we were promised that automation technology could potentially avoid some of this. 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call with your comments or questions. We are joined by John Paul McDuffie of the Wharton School and Costa Samaras of uh, Carnegie Mellon University. We're talking about the uh, accident that occurred uh, recently involving Uber and uh, someone riding a bicycle at night. 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, again, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Does it surprise you costed that that uber has has stopped their their uh, their research at least in the short term until they figure out what happened here with this accident out in arizona no i think it was the right call uh, they've grounded their fleets uh here in pittsburgh where the program started um and in tempe and in san francisco and in toronto uh until more information is able to be gathered 
you know, these were common uh, sites around Pittsburgh. Every day I would see dozens of autonomous Uber-driving vehicles um, driving around. Uh, uh, since the accident, since the fleet's been grounded, I haven't seen any, of course. Uh, Uber is trying to understand you know, what went wrong and how they can potentially prevent it from happening again, because this is a business risk to both Uber and Tesla. And, you know, if they're seen to be either uh, not compassionate, but also not responsible in, in making sure that these risks are reduced, uh, the future of, of their business and automation is uh, is more in question. John Paul? Yeah, I was uh, thinking about this as partly a story for all automated vehicles and, and, you know, their future in this difficult transition. But there's also a bunch of this that feels like an Uber story, um, at least, uh, and, and maybe helping us understand that there are different approaches being taken by different companies and we can't put them all under one uh, one umbrella. I mean, you know, it, it probably could have happened to anyone, but, you know, some of what uh, – the way Uber has approached this fits other parts of their narrative recently, probably unfortunately for them. You know, they started testing in San Francisco these vehicles without a permit, saying, you know, as they generally has been their approach to regulation, and then California shut them down. So they made a big show of putting their cars on flatbed trucks and going to Arizona, where the governor welcomed them by saying, you know, we were open for business and, and had, you know, less regulation. Uh, I mean, I, I only know from the press accounts about this, but it seems that they, uh, you know, they rushed into testing uh, pretty early. They had two drivers uh, at first and then dropped to one driver. Um, you know, the they had their safety equipment in the Volvo turned off. That appears to be a completely legitimate way to test your own software, but it certainly sounds, um, I mean, it was something that, some of the safety manufacturers for that Volvo, um, for some of the equipment, Aptive, which used to be Delphi, uh, made the point of saying, hey, our equipment was turned off, so don't blame us for this for this accident. Um, one LiDAR on the top, none on the sides, as some other manufacturers have. So, you know, un- unfor- unfortunately, it's, it's really hard, I think, to evaluate to this till we have a full report. Um, there's some aspects of the story that make it look like Uber kind of rushing in, cutting corners, may have been part of why uh, they had a failure in this particular incident. Well, and that that brings up an interesting part to this, and Cust, I'll throw this to you, is the fact that we have a variety of different companies that are in this race uh, to a degree to get to the finish line first. And obviously, we haven't had a lot of these instances where people have lost their lives in it. But there is that concern of this being a race and there's obviously having a there's an economic benefit to to the end of whoever gets there first. And you're talking about that in conjunction with the issues uh, surrounding humans and distracted driving and and people's lives as well. So I think for a lot of people looking at this from the outside, this may be a little concerning that you have some of these elements coming together. Yeah, I mean, the the challenge here is that you have PR, engineering, policy, regulation, and risk all kind of coming together on, on, the, on public streets. Um, it is important that these companies test in the real world as well as on uh, in simulations. So we can't just not test on the streets if we want to have this technology um, for the benefit of society you know, in the future. Uh, I guess the challenge is, as you mentioned, uh, are they putting stuff out uh, on the cheap? Are they doing stuff uh, where it's not ready for prime time, uh, I guess we'll wait for the report and see, and see what happens. I do think that um, 
several of the companies that, that John Paul and you have mentioned uh, do do things differently um, than Uber has done. But Uber has also had just this, um, uh, you know, this is the first major fatality um, in, from a automated vehicle where there's a safety driver. And there's been a lot of miles. Now, the, 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 the rate is worse than it is on the, in the general public. But these are the cases that, that will shape public's mind, the public's mind. Yeah. And if we're able to, uh, you know, learn and make the data open and, and improve from this, that's going to be a benefit for everybody. But if it stays closed and uh, people clam up, then we're going to have a problem. And, and I guess part of it also, John Paul, is the fact, and we've kind of touched with uh, on this with you before, is the fact that, it, you know, it's one thing to test a car on a road. The weather conditions are, are you know, are optimal. Uh, but you have all kinds of different elements that could come into play, whether it be weather, whether it be other uh, pedestrians walking across the street or cyclists. You know, there, there are so many different scenarios that actually can be put into play when you're talking about the testing part of autonomous driving. Yeah, uh, that's certainly the case. And I couldn't agree more that the vehicles need the real world testing to improve. Um, you know, it's no coincidence that uh, all these companies are finding Arizona and the suburbs around Phoenix very good places to test because the it's flat, nice wide roads, simple intersections, dry weather, sunny weather, little rain, little fog. Um, you know, those are very good conditions. Those other tougher conditions that exist other places will 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 need to. Be be tested out, um, but I think it's it's interesting. You know, Waymo uh, has launched first with drivers and now without drivers a uh, you know an early service, a robo taxi type of service, and um, they took a couple of unusual steps. I thought right after this accident. First of all, uh, the the CEO John Kraftick, uh said our technology would have would have spotted this pedestrian and averted this right. accident. That's yeah. a pretty bold claim. He yeah. must have had some confidence from his engineers in making that. Um, others have simply applied their algorithms. Uh, Mobileye, which is now owned by Intel, has have applied their algorithm to the video release from the Uber uh, accident and said, hey, our algorithm caught, uh, spotted the pedestrian earlier. So, you know, you've got a little bit of a, our technology is better than yours. Yeah. Don't, don't paint us with the the same brush. And then Waymo went ahead and said, um, you know, we're going to order 20,000 electric Jaguars to uh, speed up the pace on our robo-taxi service. And uh, we're looking for other partners as well. So, you know, it, it, I'm, sh- I'm sure there was a strategic uh, calculus there of making sure people didn't um, automatically think all automated vehicles were dangerous and to make a bold claim that ours is safer and we're moving ahead quickly. Well, and, and if memory serves me, I saw a, an article over the weekend that uh, talked about John Paul. California, I guess, was getting ready to start allowing driverless vehicles without human assistance or at least, you know, start the permitting process. But from what I read, uh, none, no companies have really stepped forward to go after those permits, at least right now. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, there was a brief period when California didn't have regulations worked out, and uh, and they were criticized for that, but then they released some regulations. They've had a permit process for driving uh, these vehicles with a test driver inside for a few months now. There's 52 companies that hold those permits, and there are some requirements, like you have to report every time there's a disengagement of the automated controls for the driver to take over. It's, it's actually kind of 
at least if you're uh, geeky about this stuff, it's kind of fun to go to the website and look at the different disengagement incidents and what causes them. Uh, but April 2nd, today was the day that um, permits were going to be allowed to have those vehicles operate with no drivers. So, um, I mean, I think we'll see. I imagine that plenty of companies will request the permits. Um, how long they'll wait before they start using the permits, I think, is the question in the current um, environment. Costa? Yeah, John Paul is right. And according to the data that California collected, I think Waymo uh, drivers had to uh, re-engage with the car every 5,600 miles or so. So that's uh, still got a long way to go, but but sounds more impressive than what we've heard from some of the other anecdotes around how often the safety drivers have to retake the wheel. I, I think the, the thing that's bothering me about these two crashes, both Tesla and Uber, is why no braking was applied by the sensing and the and the machine at all. And, you know, you can go and buy automatic emergency braking on most mid-level cars right now, which would use radar, detect an object in front of you, and come to a, uh, slow the vehicle down. Um, I'm not sure why, in either of these cases, uh, the, the automatic emergency braking from the auto, uh, automated drive system didn't engage at all. And if it were to engage some with the with the bicycle fatality uh, in in Arizona, uh, that that pedestrian that bicyclist may have survived. As as the speed goes down, your chances of uh, uh, survival go up a lot when you're hit uh, as pedestrian by by a car. So that's something that I want to read in the final report and understand what happened here. Eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. If you'd like to join in with your comments or questions, Dan Loney in our studios in Philadelphia, John Paul McDuffie of the Wharton School joining us on the phone, as is Costa Samaras of Carnegie Mellon University. Eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Costa, I want to go back to something that, that John Paul touched on, and I mentioned with the, with the, the the various elements that could be involved in in testing a vehicle. You mentioned you had seen you've seen a variety of vehicles in the Pittsburgh area. There, what has been the testing in all types of different weather conditions there in Pittsburgh, which obviously uh, would probably pre- pre- present a different variety of elements than maybe you would see in Arizona. Yeah, the, the snow, um, heavy rain, fog, um, these are elements that autonomous vehicle designers have always been worried about um, with some of the newer sensing and, and, and newer um, uh, cameras. Folks are claiming that they're doing better uh, in these types of elements. Um, and that seems to be the case. But, again, we haven't seen the disengagement data from Pittsburgh as we've seen it from California yet. Um, and that's something that, that I think all vehicle manufacturers should be required to share so that everybody can learn from this in this important stage. Now, you can't only sell vehicles where it's night, where there's nice weather, right? There's plenty of places around the country where um, you know, weather is, is not all sunny all the time. Right. So companies are going to have to figure this out in order to uh, you know, be successful. John Paul, what's your expectation then with with these two instances about how this will impact the research moving forward? Um, well, I, I I do think that after the results of the inquiries are are made public and people have a better handle on exactly what happened, um, there'll be some cautious you know startup again of the various testing, and I think that's appropriate. Uh, there's an interesting question about how regulators uh, or those thinking about regulatory issues will um, will react to this. You already have the CEO of Mobileye, which uh, is a, a prominent actor in this with its sensor and camera systems, now owned by Intel. 
saying um, this shows that we need uh, some validated uh, validation methods for uh, these new technologies before we allow them on public streets. That's an unusual sort of invitation to uh, to uh, move towards regulation from someone in the industry. And, you know, he's not saying government should do it on their own. He's saying it should be done with the full cooperation of the auto companies and, and the tech companies and the like. I mean, there's a bill stalled in Congress right now which has a few features. One feature was to allow an exemption for companies who were testing these to not observe the uh, the federal vehicle safety standards that all other cars have to observe. And, you know, the claim is that to, to outfit these vehicles with things like, oh, I don't know, uh, the, the proper safety features for putting a car seat in the back um, might not be needed if it's going to just be a test vehicle. And, and, and in general, you know, when you're when you're modifying these vehicles, that maybe it's too much to ask them to still meet all the other requirements. So that's that's one thing. There there may be some uh, pushback on that. There was also a provision to say that the federal law would preempt all state laws, and the federal law at the moment, the one that's stuck, would have very very little regulation. It's a pretty laissez-faire um, kind of bill, and it's in. The name of innovation, saying let's let's move forward quickly with this and let's not slow it slow it down. So I can imagine some uh, some different thoughts about that legislation now that that may cause it to be modified. It may right. just keep it being uh, being stuck. I think that's as much as what the companies do. Um, what happens at the, in the regulatory discussion is worth watching. Great having you both with us. Thank you, John Paul. Thank you, Cost. All the best, and we will uh, talk to you again very soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. John Paul McDuffie of the Wharton School, Costa Samaras of Carnegie Mellon University. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.